0: Shut up and sit down. Welcome to the Edu Third Space podcast, where we address the important questions. What is education? Where does it occur? And who gets to decide? Hello listeners and welcome back. Today I'm speaking with Kim Schlaes. Kim is a developmental therapist. She works with young kids from birth to an early age who are experiencing developmental delays. She mostly works with them in their home, although that has changed a bit with stay-at-home orders during the COVID-19 pandemic. So she talks a little bit about working directly with the children who she serves while also working with parents and the children from a remote location um, over the past couple of months. So her focus is mostly on educating in the home, so working directly with children and also working with um, parents. Later in the episode, we also get into what it means for kids to be normal and ready for school. I hope you enjoy my conversations with Kim. And as always, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review wherever you listen and donate by visiting the website edu Thank you. Hi, Kim. Hi.
1: How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing
0: well. I just thought about in the introduction. Did you change your last name?
1: Did not. No. I
0: didn't no. think so, but I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah, I
1: no. Be this. <laughs> no. I was gonna wait till uh, my passport expired to actually make those changes, and now I feel like that's probably not gonna happen for quite a while. So we're just sticking for Shlaes, with Shleis for now. Okay. Cool. Cool. All right. Yeah. Just want to make sure
0: <laughs> that. Um, side note for the listeners: one of my closest friends that I actually knew. <laughs> <her last name. laughs>
1: Lots of happens in the past, you know, six months. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Cool. All right. So we're going to start today by you just giving us um, kind of an overview of your experience in the field of education, either personally or professionally or both, and then ending with what work you're doing these days. Yeah.
1: So, you know, I've always... Growing up, worked with kids, um, whether it was like teaching swim lessons or babysitting, you know, that was a common job for teenage girls. And I definitely took advantage of that. Um, And I was always told you should go work in education. And I always said no, because I don't want (laughs) to be in a classroom. Um, And in college, when Samantha and I were at IU, we both worked at a small daycare center. Um, And then I realized, of course, this is our senior year. And that's when I realized, oh, wait, I do want to work with you. But it's a little late to change my major. So um, took some, you know, graduated college, started working in um, real estate insurance, which was not very exciting, which really motivated me to go back to school. Um, Got my master's in early childhood education because the little ones are kind of where my heart is at. And it worked out really nicely because this was around the same time that you know, the uh real estate market was going under. And so it was a really s- pretty smooth transition for me. I mean, it took me a little while to find a teaching job, but um I worked in Head Start for a few years and I like the uh the theory behind Head Start is fantastic, but it's very challenging to implement. Um and after a few years in the classroom, I was feeling um, like I wasn't getting the hang of it. I didn't feel a lot of support as a teacher and started exploring some other options and started becoming interested in what we call in Illinois developmental therapy, which is a global sort of perspective of child development uh, within the early intervention program. And so I started doing that in 2014 and I have been doing it ever since. So I work for a small pediatric therapy clinic called Playworks Therapy in Chicago. It's in the Roscoe Village neighborhood. And we treat children from birth through 12 years old. Um, but my main focus is the Early Intervention Program, which treats children zero to three and their families. Um, so these are children who have some sort of developmental delay, they might have a diagnosis of some sort, but they are showing signs of some delay. And so I go into their homes or daycares, um, whatever is the most natural environment for the, for the child, and provide support um, in any way I can. And so, like I said, I've been doing that since 2014, so it's been almost six years now, and it's challenging, but I love it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. so
0: the kind of broad questions of this podcast are, what is education, where does it occur, and who gets to decide? And so one question I like to ask everyone is, how would you define education?
1: Well, I mean, it's learning to me, so... It doesn't necessarily need to be in, you know, the current structure of like a classroom setting. I feel like when people think education, they immediately think schools. And while that is a huge part of education, um, I'm a big believer that education can really occur anywhere with anyone through um, just communication and storytelling, through exploration and and problem solving and things like that. But any sort of acquisition of new information, um, I would consider education.
0: So thinking about that, what kind of activities do you do with kid, the kids that you work with?
1: You know, I'm working with a really young population, um, zero to three. And, um, you know, our current state of affairs and the current climate has really kind of changed this. So to be honest, I think um, had we talked know, a few months ago, I'd probably have a little bit different of an answer. Um, Being a teacher at heart, I'm definitely going into the home or the daycare with a little bit of a plan and activities based on what the child's need is. Um, But now through early intervention, you know, with our current shelter in place, we're obviously not able to go to homes. And so I'm doing a lot more coaching with the parents. Um, We were recently approved to do virtual visits. So using, we use the platform Zoom and it's a lot more coaching. I can't plan my activities as well as I could before because it's a little less out of my control. So, all activities, whether I plan them or the parents kind of, you know, we brainstorm together to plan these activities, um, it's all based on the child's need and really what the family wants and what they're looking for. I might come in with an idea in my head, but something else might have occurred that week that was just more pressing for that family. So, I can prepare activities as much as I want, but it really it depends on the day and the child and the family. So it always kind of changes.
0: So is there any kind of like theory or like how do you choose your activities um, to meet the needs of the child?
1: Well, it's basically looking at, I don't, I mean, there's like the theory of play and things like that. I definitely developmental therapy is a play therapy. It's play-based. Um, and I'm really there to teach the children how to play because that is their work. And if they aren't playing appropriately, they're not able to learn the appropriate skills that they need to, you know, um, function in our daily life. So I do use an assessment tool. I have a few um, resource books that I refer refer to and things like that. But a lot of it is just based on, like I said, like what the family needs and, and what they're looking for. The assessment tool that I use is curriculum-based, so it does provide a lot of activities and structures. It's called the HELP. It's the Hawaii Early Learning Profile, and it's incredibly extensive, specific for children zero to three years old. This tool looks at all, all areas of development in a child. So while I do really focus on their play and social-emotional development, We do also assess things like sensory processing and um, communication and motor skills and self-help skills. So I'll use some activities from there, but a lot of it is also, you know, brainstorming with a family and trying to figure out, you know, what would work best for
0: them too. So, yeah. Okay. So considering it's play therapy, like what kind of advice are you giving to parents, like either when you're in the home or now with, you know. Just side note during the time of this recording, you mentioned, but we're, you know, going through the COVID-19 pandemic shutdown. So what kind of advice when you were in the home and now over telehealth are you giving to families?
1: So it's everything. Let me think about different kids specifically because mm-hmm. it's been very different for different families. Mm-hmm. So some families, it's really based on what their goals are. Mm-hmm. Um, so if their goal is for their, most of my children are, uh, most of the kids that I see, I call them my kids, of course, but <laughs> most, of the, most of my clients are um, nonverbal currently or have very limited communication skills. And so that's usually the overarching goal is to mm-hmm. help provide them. some um, some communication skills. Um, And so I've really been helping support them um, learning how to, like I said, mentioned before, learning how to play functionally so that they can gain new skills. So with some children, I mean, this is kind of a gross generalization, but some of my clients who have, say, um, autism spectrum disorder, we're really looking at building the foundation for communication and socialization so that they can, commu- so they can engage in social activities and things like that. So it's a lot of working on joint attention, engagement, um, just attending to adult direction. Other children, I'm, I have a client currently uh, with cerebral palsy, and so it's really encouraging using both sides of her body mm-hmm. and things like that. So coming up with play activities to get so that you know she has these force to use both sides of her body and not just the one side that's a little bit stronger. I have a few clients with some seizure disorders, and so that's also very, very tricky. But a lot of those types of things are also learning in addition to just general play skills, but also working on their concept knowledge. So like preschool readiness type things. Yeah. So it's a variety based on the need and you'd be very surprised. I mean, there's a huge, a huge jump from my little ones who mm-hmm. I claim as young as 12 months to kids who are almost turning three and just mm-hmm. varied, um, varied skills and things like that. So you always have to have a lot of activities and ideas in your back pocket because you're really not sure what, you know, what's going to happen that day.
0: And why did you switch from doing school-based learning to home-based learning?
1: Yeah, so you know, I really I found when I was doing my school-based learning that there's more to learning than just the school <laughs> and it really starts at home. I mean, I tell parents all the time that these parents are the first educators in this child's life and the most important educator Mm -hmm. in the child's life. And I really wanted to have that type of connection with people. Um, It is very, you know, I'm going into people's homes in the first few sessions, Mm -hmm. it can be very uncomfortable for them, you know, having someone in their home, playing with their Mm -hmm. child, giving them tips on things to do, you know, can be very challenging. And I really, I, I pride myself in um, being able to kind of code switch with families, so kind of read people pretty well and help make them feel comfortable in these situations. And I just really love being on the ground, you know, being one of the first people helping build that foundation for education. I think it's really important to have a healthy relationship with education and learning. And I want to be able to help, you know, build that for, for young children so that they do long term do enjoy learning and education. So I feel like I have much more of a personal impact. I create really personal relationships that you can't really do in the classroom.
0: Okay. And is there any advice that you would give, like a school-based educator, of things that you've learned working um, just more one-on-one with kids?
1: Yeah. I mean, as much if, if they're able to, you know, connect with the family on on a different level, you know, not just not just talking to the parent. Um, and I'm obviously thinking about younger children, but not communicating with a parent only about educational things with their child. <laughs> I think really focusing on not just the, the, the academic part, um, because I definitely take a whole child approach. And I think that that would be really, really helpful in understanding where your children are coming from, your, your students, mm-hmm. I should say, mm-hmm. um, where your students are coming from. And it's, I don't know how easy that is though. That's, Part of the reason why I made the switch because it was just so challenging to be able to do that, and um, you know if you do have the time and the capability to kind of try and connect a little bit deeper, um, I think it would make everyone's experience a little bit better. But you know there's definitely different boundaries that can't be crossed and things like that. So I think it's it's a little tricky. But if you're able to kind of take it a little bit deeper than just surface level education type things, that would really you know, help the child feel supported and loved and cared about and create a nurturing environment so that they can blossom and, and achieve their goals.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned that it's difficult for schools to adopt, you know, kind of the advice that you were just giving generally into... A school, I imagine because the model doesn't really allow for that to happen. So considering you have both experiences working in a school and working with kids in their home, how do you think the model could change to better accommodate families?
1: That's a really good question. You know, one thing that I did like about um, Head Start was that they did require their teachers to do home visits and you had to do I can't remember exactly, maybe two or three a year. And I think that, you know, if there was some way to be able to do that, at least with kindergarten, first grade, or I, I don't know how, you know, how you'd really be able to achieve that. But in my experience, I think that that was really, really helpful. Like I said, it's it can be uncomfortable, too. <laughs> so some families don't want to invite you in that part of your life or in their life. And, you know, obviously you have to respect that. But I, yeah, I think that if they are able to, you know, open up that way, too, I think it could be very beneficial.
0: Yeah. And what about within the school? Are there any, like, hmm. ways that you think the actual school itself could change to accommodate families better?
1: Well, I mean, maybe one thing that they could probably do is, I mean, like take that in consideration and like the at home work that they expect their children mm -hmm. to do, the students to do, because I mean, especially right now, I think People are very challenged by being staying home with their families, and you know, expecting to do this e-learning with their students, and um, just recognizing the value in family time. It's not always about products, you know. It's mm. not it always have to be about worksheets and handouts and things like that. Um, maybe giving families ideas of ways to support each other. You know, and maybe instead of a homework assignment one night, you. You know, ask the families to cook dinner together, or something like that, because, like I had mentioned before, I mean, I'm a true believer that the parents are the first teachers, whether they really want to be or not sometimes, and those experiences are just as just as important of whatever's going on in the classroom, if not more.
0: yeah, I was talking to someone the other day, and her episode will come before yours, but you know she was talking about, yeah, like cooking, she was home educated for up until like middle school I think so she was talking you know just about that experience and then what her community has been doing recently to respond and so they've like set up scavenger hunts in the neighborhood and you know puts like they did some sort of like jungle or safari so each different house had a different animal or type of animal or region of the world or you know something like that so that even got me thinking like about the community aspect of you know, educating and how kids learn, you know, they learn where they are, not just in school, but where they live. Yeah. So stuff like that.
1: Definitely. And I've seen some of that in our neighborhood too. They've done, you know, things like that, you know, when this all first occurred, it was really right around St. Patrick's day. And so Mm -hmm. some of the homes had um, shamrocks in the windows. And um, I had my daughter participate in that too, even though she was a little young. So we went on our little scavenger hunt and, Mm -hmm. you know, I was pretty, proud that I found many shamrocks (laughs) she was just not interested I had no idea what I was talking about but yeah I think that is another great way to you know provide some education in a little bit less traditional way than we think but I, I definitely in my own experience personally being home with my daughter right now I can see these experiences that, you know, we've had to before cram, cram in in the evening or on a weekend and being able to expand that a little bit more every day, being home together all the time and being really just more involved in the education process has been really cool to watch. I feel lucky that I do have this background so that I, I can take a little bit of a step back and kind of enjoy this process. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know other families not, aren't necessarily feeling that same excitement right now because it can be a little stressful
0: uh-huh.
1: yeah, there are some good opportunities out there right now too,
0: yeah, yeah, I um will note that your Instagram stories share all the different oh. things that you do um, with your daughter.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's honestly, well, it's helpful because, you know, I have like aunts and, you know, grandparents want to see that kind of stuff. When, when this first started, I kind of wanted to do a little bit of journaling, this being the shelter in place. And um, I had my notebook ready and I am not a journaler. And as much as I told myself, I'm going to write every day, I haven't been. So this is a really great way for me to keep track of what we've done and the experience that we had during this. And also, you know, to give other people ideas, because it's all about sharing and, you know, not recreating the wheel. So but it's been kind of fun to see that too. I like to look back at what we've done the past few weeks. And, and Sometimes I forget, <laughs> so I yeah. always to be able to check. I'm like, oh, that was that activity was a hit. Let's try that one again.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you are journaling. It's modern day. Journaling. I know, I know. That's what
1: my Mom said, so it made me feel a little bit better. But there is something about pen and paper. Like, yeah. let's be yeah. honest, that, you know, that's really cool too. But you know, um, I'll take what I you know. I'm doing the best
0: I can. Though <laughs> yeah. Yeah. this so works have, for me right now. Yeah, I have been journaling, and it is a chore. I've I mean and I even enjoy writing, but I it's, know. So you you are a writer. Do you do yeah. it every day Yeah, however, I do it for each day, whether it happens on that day, and so I've yeah. tried to get better about doing it every day because if I wait three days and try to think back, I mean the entries are much shorter, so I know yeah. I'm missing like feelings that I had, things that I witnessed, you know yeah. Um, yeah. so. Yeah, because I think it'll be an interesting sort of historical record. I
1: know, I know. Maybe, okay, I'm going to try again. <laughs> Tomorrow's a new day. Oh, right. I know it. Well, and this is the way, the way I think about it, too. I was like, okay, I'll start at the beginning of April. <laughs> and I don't know why. I mean, I could just start today, but it will be an interesting piece of history that we've been a part of. So, but yeah, I'm doing my part with my pictures, so. Yeah,
0: yeah. Now, do you share that with um, your families, like when you're, not the videos necessarily, but the types of activities you've been doing with your daughter?
1: I have. In Illinois, we just got approved to do these telehealth sessions a few weeks ago. Um, I think we're starting week three this week, three or four of telehealth sessions. Prior to that, we were given permission to um, make consult calls with the family, so which we were not allowed to do before. We were not allowed to use billable time to do these. So now we are allowed to bill the state for, for our consult calls with parents. And so we would discuss you know, how the child's doing over the week and where, you know, some areas they want to continue working on. And then at the end of every conversation, I said, do you want another handful of activities to do sensory play, things like that, things that I know have been tried and true. So there's been like, I've had several activities that I'm like, emailing, Oh, try this, try this. And then the next week, I'm like, Oh, that one was a bust. Don't try that again, you know, you know, sharing that providing that for them. And it's been very interesting, too, because I think I've been really when when they hear it from a professional mm-hmm. and I, you know, I talk about playing with water and the, then they're like, Oh, well playing with water, like, what are they going to learn? And then being able mm-hmm. to explain to them, like, you know, spatial awareness and they're learning measurements, you know, give them measuring cups and letting them spill and dump. And, but then they're also might be testing some boundaries with you. Like there's a lot of learning that goes on in these you know what we think are sensory activities, or maybe a little bit more mindless play, but they are learning so so much, and so it's been kind of cool to share those activities and and get, show them how that's a little educational as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of my concerns. You know, and I've shared with you probably many times, and even in previous podcast episodes, but that learning happens in school, and that people have that's been so ingrained in people's thinking that You know, they don't even, like kids, that's, well, humans, that's how we develop and survive is by learning. We learn not to touch the flame. We learn, you know, all of these things by kind of doing, exploring, um, just existing in the world. So what do you, so with that said, maybe I'm leading you to an answer here, but do you think that is an issue with the parents you work with? Like, for example, they're like, oh, what can they learn from water? Some of them,
1: yes. Some, it's, it's very interesting because when you go into somebody's home, you know, there's these expectations that they may have, or they don't have at all. You know, they either have a slew of expectations Mm -hmm. of you coming into their home or none at all. And so I've come in before. And a lot of the thing that's very interesting is when I first start with a family, a lot of them don't, they go through the evaluation Um, either me being their evaluator or somebody else. And I come into Ride services and developmental therapy is always the one that they're not so sure of. So it's kind of like reminding them my role and how I can support them and things like that. And some of these families expect you to fix them, fix their child. You know, you go play and I'll go do the dishes. And then in an hour we'll check in and well, you were here for an hour last week and I haven't seen any progress this past week. So what I really explain to my families is is like therapy in early intervention or anytime. I think a lot of it is, unless it's like physical therapy where they're doing stretching and things like that, and you need the physical therapist there. I like to think about it as like working out. Like if you go to one workout class and then do nothing the rest of the week, nothing is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you take the, you you go to your workout class and then you kind of do the exercises throughout the week, you'll see a lot of progress. Mm -hmm. And so I try to really motivate and and encourage my parents to realize that they are like I said before you know the teacher Mm. and to really you know they're their child advocate they're the only they're the ones that need to stand up and speak for their child and and everything like that so that can be a little tricky sometimes if they don't understand how the the therapeutic process works and the thing that's really nice about getting more comfortable in my career is I'm feel a little more confident in sharing that with families Mm -hmm. than I probably was five years ago. So, you know, they, I think I can, after a few weeks, (laughs) they kind of get the the idea that, you know, I'm here to support them. I'm not going to do all the work myself and it's not going to be a magic overnight, you know, scenario Mm -hmm. on my own.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of sad, this idea of fixing a child, you know, like, just because They, they were born a certain way or, you know.
1: I can't tell you how many times, you know, they just want their child to be normal. And that's the word that they, that they use. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I try to, you know, I recognize that feeling and I honor that feeling for them, but like boring or normal is so boring. Like, (laughs) like, you don't want, you know, like, that's not what we want. And, and, um, so you know, it's just helping them understand, and just helping them understand their child's strengths, and and really amplifying those things. You know, but it's it can be really hard, you know, especially with the population that I work with, with their age, because everything is still so new. A lot of my families, a lot of the clients that I see, you know, they are getting their diagnoses. What no matter what they may be, it might be something genetic, it might be something neurological, but. You know it's um it's a it's a interesting time to be really invested and involved in a family's Mm -hmm. life because sometimes they get really tricky news sometimes you're there for the really cool moments that you know that only family really gets to see first steps first words those types of things which is Mm -hmm. really beautiful too
0: yeah and this idea of normal is not just boring it's made up you know like we create the idea of normal doesn't come from some sort of natural. Yeah.
1: And I tell families all the time because, you know, human nature is to compare, right? I mean, we really, you can't really control that. And I try to encourage them not to, but I mean, I'm guilty of that as well, you know, but I try to remind them too, you know, when they say, well, you know, we went to the park and, and these, all these little kids were playing together and I just want, you know, my child to do that too. And and then like, okay, well, we'll continue working on that and that sort of thing. But I was like, but just remember, you're seeing one little snippet of the 20 minutes of them playing. At mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. You don't know what happens at home. This child might be a terrible eater and this family's so stressed because they can't get their kid to eat. Mm-hmm. Or they might be a really terrible sleeper and this family is just, you know, at their wit's end trying to get their child to sleep. So kind of explaining, like everybody has their, their thing. And, you know, some is a little bit more obvious than others and just recognizing that, like you said, like normal is, you know, this is a construct that we created, you know, it's just, and what's normal in, where we live, where I live in Chicago will be very different than what's normal, you know, in a, you know, smaller, st- in a smaller town or something mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, so, you know, normal is boring. It's a setting on a dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and then, of course, they're probably thinking into the future as well, because there is a normal in school. They have created a standard that is set that you have to meet to do XYZ.
1: Absolutely. And that goes both with, like, you know, the learning part and also like the socialization. Mm -hmm. You know, I I like to tell parents often because it's going back to like thinking about who, you know, who's in charge of educating your child. And a lot of families will say, well, I think I think he's ready for daycare because I want him to learn how to do XYZ. Kind of explaining to them that daycare is great. If you want to work on social skills, that is a great place to do it. Mm -hmm. But if there's other things you want to work on, like they don't need to go to school to learn those things. And I just try to help empower these parents to let them know like they know more than they think. And you don't have to have a teaching certificate to, to do that with your child.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, Parents will learn that um, that'll be pronounced while you know cl- schools are closed. Is there is a Facebook group that I co-moderate and I had like posed the question about universities. Like, oh, I had spoken to someone. They were telling me all these things that have changed. Like, what are you noticing, university or K through 12? And the woman, I didn't look. It's mostly um, university folks who are on this um, in this Facebook group, but there's also K through 12 educators as well. And so I'm not sure what her role. Was but she was talking about her family, and she was kind of like saying, as far as school is concerned, the emperor has no clothes. She's like, The type of work that my kids have been doing, I was shocked to see the low level of expectations mm-hmm. and the kind of work that they were doing. But she made sure to point out that the social aspect is much needed because two of her kids are like middle school slash high school, and then the other two are in college, and so they're at a point in their lives where. The social aspect is huge for them. I mean, I guess all through childhood, it's huge. But, you know, it's like they're missing out. Their friends are everything in their life at this time. They can't see them. You know, they're depressed about it. So that's definitely an aspect I think we're learning that whether it's school or not, you know, in some way that has to be a part of learning.
1: Absolutely. I mean, hmm. that's a big concern of a lot of my clients' families as well right now, because we're working on social skills with mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. kids, um, especially those that are showing signs of AS- autism spectrum disorder, ASD, or, or already diagnosed. And so they're really concerned about having a bit of a regression because of this and I understand their concerns I mean personally I my daughter is pretty shy and I'm pretty nervous about mm-hmm. what this will look like um, in a few months when we are getting back to a different style of life and um not home altogether all the time so and and the tricky thing too is you know we can do zoom meetings or zoom chats and things like that but it's so different. Like the body Mm. language is different and, and all those um, nonverbal cues that you get working, you know, or discussing, Mm. communicating Mm. with people in person rather than over screen. Mm. Um, So it's just going to be a different, I think people are realizing how much they appreciate social interaction (laughs) now when we have minimal, but you know, we're all in this together. And We'll figure it out. You know, that's what I keep telling my, you know, my family, my parents and, you know, trying to limit screen time as much as Mm, possible, which is very hard to request of anyone right now, Mm -hmm. especially if this is a, you know, a working parent who's now a working from home parent that did not Mm -hmm. plan to work from home with their children who also have to do e-learning and, or just want attention and they want to be played with and Mm -hmm. whatnot. But yeah, the social aspect is just so, I mean, I think that's one of the, Most important things you learn in school: how to be a part of a group, and how to problem solve social issues, and learning when to bite your tongue, and all that (laughs) stuff. You know, so it'll be interesting moving forward, seeing how that you know how how this potentially could impact everyone. I want to say our youth, but you know, we'll see.
0: Yeah. So, do you see you can consider the current time we're in, or just in general? kind of like what is your vision for the future of education, either from what you've experienced personally or just kind of a trajectory you see us going on?
1: So as I said before, like if we had this conversation a few months ago, I'd probably have a much different answer. Mm -hmm. I think, well, what I'm hoping is that families do recognize that they are, you know, whether they're early intervention families or just Families with children, um, young adults, adolescents, and education—just how how much of a part of their education that they really are, whether they knew it or not. Mm-hmm. But I also I, I really like how we're using this technology these days, and I think we're going to kind of be forced long term to mm-hmm. do this type of e-learning or communication. And I think it'll be we'll see the most in the fall once you know kids are back in school for those who you know, have will not go back this year. I know New York said they're not going back. Illinois is not going back. Yeah. Several states now, you know, are not going back and they're starting to think about what the fall will look like. And short term, I think it's going to be a lot of some e-learning. It might be a little bit of combination. That's what I'm really hoping. So that, like we said, with the social skills that, you know, kids can get back and be socialized and, and everything, you know, but I think we're in for a really interesting shift coming up Mm -hmm. and I'm excited to see where it goes, but I think we'll also learn that you do not need to be within the four walls of a school to do your learning. There's been a really cool chart kind of floating around Facebook and stuff about how much learning is really expected per age. Like, um, per hours per day. Have you seen yeah. it? And so, you know, No, but just, that's what
0: this woman, one of her points was. She's like, what I've learned is they could do what is expected of them in much less time than what is required.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then it gets a little tricky because then I think families are concerned, like, well, what am I going to do the rest of the day to fill up their time? And there's a lot to be said about, yes, having structured activities for your child like I've tried to do, but there is something to be said about letting them have a little bit of free range and decision making mm-hmm. on what, you know, how they're going to do whatever type of learning you want them to do. So while it's not like a really concise answer, yeah. <laughs> a lot is going to change um specifically in the, you know, in the next school year is going to be a, a drastic different difference than what we've seen in, in the past
0: few decades, probably. Yeah, I think so too. And I'm kind of excited to see. Um, what do you
1: think? Can I ask what you think?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean... You know, my, my thinking about education schooling in particular has morphed quite a bit over the years, especially since getting my PhD. And part of that is just, again, this idea of the emperor has no clothes. Like the arguments that are made in schools of education a lot of times aren't research-based, which is funny, because that is their primary job at an R1 institution, <laughs> is to do research, teaching comes come second. So yeah, I mean, there has been, so this is just kind of like a side note that I found interesting. There's a Harvard professor who recently released a paper, full disclosure, I have not read it yet, but I have seen criticisms. It's basically saying that homeschooling is um, harmful to children was kind of her conclusion. I think she was coming at it from a, like, uh, maybe looking at data from child welfare organization or department. I'm not sure. Again, I haven't seen, I've just seen some of the criticism of it. And I'm like, how funny that you've, that this got published or maybe she just recently wrote this article. I don't know. But in a time when parents are home educating, um, they do not have a choice right now. This is the game. This is the only game in town. And how sad so,
1: families read that right now? We need to put more pressure and stress on them thinking that this is the worst thing for their, for their right. children.
0: Right. And wow. then, so then that gets into two thoughts of mine is one this woman perhaps thinks that the government is better at educating children than parents are, which is very condescending and also very scary to say yeah, like, yeah, that, yeah, that this should be, you know, we're mandating this because we know better than you. And there are, I imagine, plenty of people who work in education who think that way. Yeah. So, To me, I mean, my big thing is schools are going to exist because we're in a time when two parents need to work. So something maybe not a school as it's like currently structured, but some sort of institution, maybe they move from their science school to their, you know, arts class, they go to, you know, and that's what a lot of homeschooling parents do, is they have their kids enrolled in all of these different things, and then maybe part of it takes place in their own home, you know, so I think maybe that is a direction that I would like to see. And also competency-based learning is one of my big areas of focus right now because it's more skills-based. Kids can learn their interest more easily and you, you're not moving on until you master the skill. You know, whatever direction you're taking, obviously when you're young, it would need to look different than when you're older because there are some kind of like foundational skills that you need to know to be able to move forward. But then as you get older, it kind of like, this is a dirty word in education, but it tracks, you know, students into different areas, but more interest-based, more, like I think one of the worst things, one of the, I don't know, worst is not the right word, but now I can't think of a good word, but one of the more um, harmful, I don't know, I can't think of a good word that's going to make this come out well, because it's not going to be, this isn't a Well, accepted idea. But I think equality in education is very problematic. Kids are not all the same. And you know that as a teacher. When you're a teacher, you know that kids are not all the same. But this rhetoric that we must all be equal, one, is a a game we're never going to win because kids aren't equal. And so it's just you're making kids feel bad about themselves because they're supposed to be the exact same as everyone around them. This idea of normal, like we were talking about. So I I think that's something. That we need to get rid of sooner rather than later in competency-based education also it's kind of like more Montessori model if people you know have a a sense of what that is but it's more you know independent but also learning to work together like you're good at this I'm good at this let's bring those you know skills together to solve whatever problem Mm -hmm. Um, so it's more I think societies are more likely to thrive if you highlight individual differences because then we can come together to make society function. If we all make the same thing, if we all have the same job, if we have, all have the same skill set, like, are we going to survive as a society? That no, would
1: be too stagnant. That's a really
0: yeah. good point. Yeah. So how but do we do that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, my, like, first thing is always no child left behind, this idea that we all have to take standardized tests each year and kids all have to, you know, hit a certain level on that needs to go bye-bye and switching more to competency-based learning.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. There's, there's a lot to be said, you know, with the, with the children, the age that I work with. So for example, the big thing is, you know, when I first start with a family, especially if they're two or old, the child is two or older and I'll say, you know, what are your goals? And a lot of them are saying like, well, I want him to talk, but I really want him to know his letters and his numbers and his colors. And, um, and it's because that's what they're, Mm -hmm. you know, they know that that's what's expected for them to be successful in Mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. And um, I have to gently remind them that, that's not even age appropriate for a two-year-old. And we have all these toys and games and everything that are marketed towards small children that have these, you know, letters and numbers and and things that just aren't appropriate. And so then I, I kind of, it helps me understand where the family's mindset Mm -hmm. is and how I can approach them to, to tell them that, you know, or, or not tell them, but, um, share information where like, I, yes, colors letters numbers those things will always be there let's work on the foundational skills where they can attend to adults they are engaged in their environment that they're inquisitive and and learning how to problem solve and if you have this really strong foundation all those other things will come we don't have to focus on that kind of stuff and don't stress yourself out over it yeah, yeah
0: yeah yeah i imagine that's a hard part of working with families as they get so wrapped up in. Oh, yeah you know this idea of where their child is supposed to be at a certain point in time um, but again i'm always like well is this coming from the school because you know even kindergarten has gotten so rigid compared to yeah. what it used to be
1: it's it's really interesting <clears throat> you know, we don't, when I um, do like an evaluation or an assessment with a client or a potential new client, um, you know, I don't give grades, but I give Mm -hmm. um, an age range of where their development is. And the thing that I really dislike about how our um, report format needs to be structured is that those numbers are always on the front page of the Mm -hmm. report. It's the first Mm -hmm. thing that the parents or families see. Mm -hmm. And so often I prefer to try to like, talk about those things last. But if I hand a parent a hard copy of a report, that's what they look at. And it's really hard sometimes if they see these numbers that are significantly low, you know, to, to let go of that. And, um, sometimes it can be hard to see outside. Like, yes, they might be, um, we always think about percentage delay. So Mm -hmm. anything for a child in the early intervention program, zero to 29% is considered typical development. And that's a pretty significant Mm -hmm. difference. So a child that's um, delayed 30% or greater would be eligible for the program and considered an actual delay. And so, yes, your child might be delayed. 35%, but when we started, they were delayed 50% Mm -hmm. and and recognizing the progress that's made in between. And especially because a lot of the progress that's made often is qualitative progress. They're Mm -hmm. engaging for longer. Um, They make really good eye contact. They're using more functional language, like hello and goodbye and using requesting, but because they're not you know, understanding the the concept of one, you know, mm-hmm. they're, it's skewed a little bit. So it can be tricky to kind of get parents on board of how important that other stuff is too. And it just gets them ready for like thinking about grades and things like that. It's just
0: yeah, right. it's so
1: much more than what that percentage or that letter grade says.
0: Yeah. So many things. So many things. <laughs> <laughs> so many things. Yeah. I just, you know, This will be one of those podcasts where I'll have to like apologize to my audience that they have to hear the same rant over and over again each guest that I talk to. I bet. I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) No, no, no. It's good because it's coming in. If you're having the
1: same, well, if you're having these same rants and conversations with everybody, like there's obviously a systemic issue here. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And obviously the guests will determine like what direction. You know, the point is to bring together a bunch of different ideas about what is education to kind yeah. of break this thought pattern that we have, that it only happens in school. Yeah. And that school only can be this way that we currently have it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That is the goal.
1: I know. Well, I think, I honestly, I think that, you know, maybe this whole current situation we have mm-hmm. with COVID-19 might be a great thing for education and shaking mm-hmm. things up and changing people's, you know, thoughts. So there's a positive that's coming out of the current climate. Yeah. Remember that.
0: Yeah. I hope so. And I think so. I think definitely. I think so.
1: At least in my own practice with my families. I had a lot of once we got approved for telehealth, mm-hmm. I've had a lot of families that are like, okay, we can try it. <laughs> I don't know how this is gonna work. And And everybody has been so pleasantly surprised. Mm -hmm. And I think getting these, forcing these parents to be really part of this therapeutic process Mm -hmm. has been an incredible learning experience for them. So they say, (laughs) and and it has been for me too, like I said before, with my own practice and style. So
0: we'll Well, see where Yeah, do you think elements of that will stick with you when you go back into the homes? Absolutely,
1: I do. So best practice and early intervention is really more of a coaching model. So, you know, but we kind of all do our thing. So I I do try to coach as much as possible, but like I had mentioned before, I am a teacher at heart and I I do like to be hands-on and I I like that too. However, I've just seen how successful this coaching is and how I'm really, really, really empowering these families. And so I have thought about how my own practice will change when I am back in the home. Mm And one of the things that I think I oh gosh I'm gonna say it now and it's gonna be recorded forever so I have to stick with it but working on being what we call bagless in the field Mm -hmm. um, so it's Mm -hmm. essentially whether you bring a toy bag to a client's house or not, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of therapists, including myself, do rely on the toy bag often,
0: Mm -hmm. um, because it's
1: nice to come in with a plan, and especially when you are looked at as the professional who Mm -hmm. is coming in, like, if you come in and don't have a plan, some of the families are a little uncomfortable with that, Yeah, yeah. but both because of how it's worked so well in practice, and also because of germs and things like that I have a feeling I will stop bringing as many objects and toys and and gadgets into the home because this is working being able to coach families and show them how there are learning opportunities playing with water um, or whatever it might be is also educational too so that will definitely change for me and I think I'm going to try and practice a little bit more coaching. But as you had mentioned before, it's tricky because parents have to work. I mean, not everybody can spend the full hour that I'm there with me. So I think I'm pretty, generally, I'm pretty good at recognizing that and meeting the families where they're at. But for the families that are able to participate in our sessions, um, I definitely think I will do a lot more coaching because it's just really beautiful to see how, how are they feel and that they know their child. And even if their child has a special need that can seem scary because they grew up, you know, a person grew up neurotypical and they didn't have any, you know, uh, developmental differences in their family or anything like that, then having a child with developmental differences or special needs can be really intimidating. Mm -hmm. Um, But reminding them that regardless of the diagnosis, this is your child and you know your child. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's been, it's been kind of cool to see them recognizing, like, I do know my kid, which is really nice. So We'll see. I'm hoping, I'm also hoping we will be able to use telehealth as a tool moving forward if we can, but that's, that's yet to be known. I I don't think relying on it full-time would be really that functional, Mm -hmm. um, but having that option should um, the family go on extended vacation, because we do have some families that, you know, decide to go back to, you know, go to another country mm-hmm. for a month or so, and then they miss out on that services. Right. Um, and like I said, like there's so many educational and wonderful things that they can do with their families while they're on vacation. But I think families do like to have that contact person and a little sense mm-hmm. of security of mm-hmm. somebody to bounce ideas off of and things like that. So I'm really hoping we'll be able to use telehealth moving forward, but
0: we'll see. Yeah. So is there anything closing out um, that you think is important to mention about your role in education or just education in general? And Diddy saying hi in the background.
1: (laughs) What is something? Oh, gosh. I guess just, you know, to the parents out there, just remember, like, you know, your child and trust your gut, you know, and just, yeah, that's probably, I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah. You're tripping me up. The last one, man.
0: <laughs> hey, that's a that's a good answer. Let's, okay, yeah. go with that.
1: Yeah, so there we go. Yeah, I think that's that's probably it. Is just you remember, you are their first. You are their first as a parent. You are their first educator. You know a lot more than you think that you do, and you're doing a much better job than you probably think you're doing too. So, I have to tell myself sometimes that too.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all parents go through this. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. But yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Kim, for joining us today.
1: This was fun. <laughs> yeah, maybe
0: we'll have you on again.
1: Let me know. <laughs> around.
0: All right. Thank you. All right. You're welcome.